Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and the way that we will harness natural resources to meet our future energy needs. My name is Tom Quinn. I am the Analysis and Insights Manager at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, the UK's leading innovation and research centre for offshore renewables. At the beginning of the year, I wrote a blog called ORE Catapult's 2020 Predictions in Offshore Renewable Energy that identified five key trends in the offshore renewable space that I predicted would take off this year. Six months on, I'm joined by Gavin Smart, Head of Analysis and Insights at ORE Catapult, to discuss just how accurate our predictions have been so far and what the remainder of 2020 has in store for offshore renewable energy developments. Without further ado, let's get started. So I think as a, as a start to this, it'd be good to know what was your motivation for coming up with these 2020 predictions? Uh, well, I think 2020 is a great year to start looking ahead at the, at the next decade. It's been a year of targets. We've seen targets smashed and also new ambitious targets set, uh, both for the UK and, and around the world, particularly thinking of the 40 gigawatt by, uh, of offshore wind by 2030 target that was set. And alongside that, we had the uh, Committee for Climate Change published a report on net zero, which is putting a pathway uh, in place for a very ambitious target for the UK to reach net zero by 2050. So it's been quite interesting because, as you said, 2020, a bit of a, a year of targets and it looks like 2030 will be as well. But a, a bit different kind of looking within the year of what's going to happen rather than, you know, looking 10 years ahead. Yeah, that's right. We've published this near the start of the year before the uh, COVID pandemic had really taken off. And it's not something I think you could have uh, really predicted. I don't think anyone predicted that. That's right. And, and just to be clear, so would you say that all these predictions are your predictions as such, or did you also get input from your colleagues around the catapult? Yeah, I'd love to take credit for all the ones that have come true, but uh, no, this is very much a collaborative effort across the, the business. Uh, I went out to our different directorates and asked them for some input. Uh, and got some really interesting responses, some pretty mundane, some very uh, left field and out there. As you touched on a second ago, it's fair to say that none of us really predicted the way 2020 is going so far, and indeed uh, looks set to continue. But how much is the current global coronavirus pandemic a factor in what you're now seeing in offshore renewables? Yeah, I think what we've seen so far, uh, there's several projects that have still gone ahead and, and been sanctioned. And these are projects that have been in the pipeline for uh, several years. So not really something that's going to be affected by what we hope is a, a short-term impact. But what we have seen is various delays on the operational side of wind farms and also developers and operators looking to adapt the way they work, uh, as we all have to do in the current scenario. So in some ways, it's a, a really hugely disruptive thing, you know, at a time when there's the, you know, the focus on climate change and net zero is critical, but possibly also presents big opportunities? Yeah, I think so. What, what we've seen is there's been an impact, um, not just in offshore wind, obviously, uh, oil and gas has been hit in a big way with demand down, prices have really dropped. And a lot of oil and gas companies are looking at how they can adapt to this world of, of lower oil prices. So we have seen some shift into offshore renewables. Um, and as well as players in the oil and gas industry, um, we're probably going to see increased opportunities for other sectors looking at offshore renewables as well. So I'm thinking things like automotive and aerospace, um, where there can be neat crossovers in areas like drivetrain technology 
and advanced manufacturing techniques. Yeah, that's that's right. And from a policy and regulation side, the government are obviously having to throw a lot of resources after their pandemic recovery plans. And that has impacted one of the points that was in the blog about the energy white paper. So, yeah, that is that's a nice lead into one of these predictions then. So um, why don't you tell us a bit about that? The plan was for the energy white paper to be published at the end of, of last year. Um, that was delayed for, for several reasons. And the plan to see it this summer has also been possibly put at risk as well. Um, what we might see is rather than a white paper being published on a standalone basis that might be incorporated with a wider recovery roadmap for the, uh, the government. So that kind of ties in with a lot of what we've been hearing from government recently um, about what the road to recovery looks like. So sounds like the, you know, the energy sector and hopefully offshore renewables in particular are a big part of that. Uh, yeah, indeed. And, and I guess that's something that's going alongside this is consultation for the threats reference with some new plans being put into place, uh, potentially opening up some new routes to market for floating wind. I mean, that sounds positive. So in terms of the auction round for uh, DFD consultation, so a good mention of, of floating wind, like you say. And also, would you see that as positive for marine energy as well? Uh, yeah, possibly. It's always good to give these new and innovative uh, technologies space to actually develop. But of course, we're going to have to look at uh, some of the details on, on the various pot sizes and, and capacity uh, limits for, for those technologies. So the devil's a bit in the detail, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I guess what was quite positive in the, the CFD consultation was, was to see you know, a lot of the work that you know, people like ourselves, Renewable UK, Scottish Renewables, have been feeding in uh, regarding the benefits of floating wind and marine energy. It feels like the momentum's there and we're now looking at, you know, what's the, what's the detail to, to get things done rather than a question of whether we should do them at all. We did touch on this previously, but the coronavirus pandemic has also hit oil and gas prices. Uh, several majors now looking to accelerate their part in the energy transition. So one of your predictions was closely related to this, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that's right. We were looking at some uh, oil and gas majors taking a stake in uh, a large offshore wind project. Uh, We had a bit of collaboration between ENI and mainstream renewable power, but the big story for the year so far is Total taking a stake in in Seagreen. And then following that, it also took a stake in uh, Erebus Flitting Wind Project. So that's a project Erebus. Um, So which project's that? So it's a 96 megawatt floating wind project and it's situated off the coast of Wales. Um, And it's quite an interesting the timing of it, it happened to be announced fairly shortly after we published a paper on Wales in the southwest and the economic benefits of floating wind. So it does sound like a few things are, are coming together quite nicely here. Maybe your predictions are more interrelated than you'd realised at the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'd hope that uh, some of the discussion that we started would have led to some of these, but maybe that's getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> you, can, you can always wish. Just going back to what you said about um, Total and their stake in Seagreen, so how, how does that relate to one of your other predictions? So one of our predictions was looking at a project that would be sanctioned uh, with some merchant risk. And what we mean by merchant risk is that it wouldn't be entirely covered by the revenue support offered by the Contracts for Difference. So with Total coming into Seagreen, it was an interesting example of this. The project is partially covered by uh, a CFD, and then also it's about 30% of it is, is getting revenue support 
through a, what they call a private CFD with SSE Group, which is the parent company for SSE, which is the uh, other shareholder. But the remaining 28% is uh, effectively at the moment under merchant risk. What does this suggest about the way that um, these, these developers and partners are viewing the risk? So there's a, a couple of angles here. One is that um, companies, developers, and also lenders are getting more comfortable with uh, taking merchant risk and having that exposure to power pricing. Um, but it's also possible that they'll be hoping to sign some of this capacity under PPAs with uh, other buyers before the project is commissioned. So, so far, you're doing not bad, actually, with these, with these predictions. Um, I'm assuming that you'll definitely claim credit for, for the ones we've covered so far. And as if this wasn't exciting enough, you also made a prediction involving one of 2020's non-coronavirus buzzwords. Yeah, hydrogen. That's um, something which has obviously really taken off in the last um, few months, really. Uh, it's always been buzzing away in the background. But what we've seen this year has been really interesting. We've seen some, again, coming back to oil and gas majors, looking to diversify away from oil and gas, but also do something that, that matches their expertise. Uh, and hydrogen fits the bill for a lot of these. So in the Netherlands, we saw the North uh, H2 project, uh, which is a gigawatt of offshore wind that's dedicated to producing green hydrogen. The prediction said that we were going to see something similar happen in the UK. That's not happened just yet, but there's definitely been a lot of activity on that front. Okay, and so why why would you say this is important? Yeah, so we have uh, a lot of offshore wind in the pipeline in the UK, potential for a huge amount more. Uh, but the real issue is, is how to handle the intermittent supply of electricity with the demand. Hydrogen offers a long-term storage solution and also a way for us to decarbonize those really sticky and difficult to decarbonize sectors like transport and, and heating. By combining offshore wind with, with hydrogen, it allows us to you know, decarbonize and make use of all the power that we generate offshore. Uh, and I think we do go into a lot more detail on this on one of our previous Re-Energize podcasts uh, that was released at the end of June. And also, I guess, the, some of the detail covered in a uh one of our recent reports on the solving the integration challenge, um, which brings a lot of these together. And, and as you said, kind of really shows the, the scale of the, the opportunity and the significance. So we did have one other prediction, um, which is more related to data and digital challenges and opportunities. Can you talk us through that a bit? Yeah, so on the data and digital side, uh, one of our predictions was looking at cybersecurity and the risk to offshore wind of, of cyber attacks. With the sector growing rapidly, it's going to be an integral part of our energy security. Um, so it's vital that developers and, and operators understand the, the risk involved. So we've, we've not seen a wind farm itself uh, come under a cyber attack, but we have seen some things on the periphery. So um, Elexon, it's the company that manages the balancing mechanism for the UK grid. They were hit by a cyber attack. It didn't have a, an impact, as far as we know, on, on the grid or the stability of the grid uh, as they were able to handle it properly. But it does really highlight one of the, the risks involved. So in terms of the cybersecurity aspect, there's some, some interesting stuff being done by ORE Catapult and maybe worth highlighting there. Yes, uh, we have a couple of cybersecurity events coming up. Uh, one is a cyber siege training day, which sounds really exciting. And we also have a wind farm cybersecurity workshop. 
so those are advertised on our website. The cyber siege events on the 23rd of July. So definitely one for those interested on the on the tech side. Um, but I, I think it's important to say that cybersecurity, it's not all about having really intricate and fancy technology to protect the systems. A lot of it is quite basic human behavior and ensuring that staff have cyber awareness as part of their training. And is that something that you see taking on heightened importance now that um, people are adapting to different ways of working? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Alexon ransomware attack, it's thought that it might have something to do with their VPN software, which is quite uh, linked to working from home. So yeah, I think that's something that's really coming to the fore at the moment. So our individual behaviours are as important as the, the systems that have been put in place, I guess? Yeah, I think I'm going to need to go to some of these training days, cyber siege training days, to, to fully understand the, the risks involved, because I think it's something that we all need to uh, start taking very seriously. So that's us with our kind of, I guess, mid-year roundup. So just uh, a quick think about what's going to happen over the rest of the year so that we can review again in December um, and see how this pans out. What are your thoughts about the next um, six months or so then? Yeah, we're starting to get some more clarity on what the recovery is going to look like. And there's definitely been a lot of talk about ensuring it's a green recovery uh, from the, the government. Some things that may be worth keeping an eye on are, are those new entrants that we talked about before. We have the Scotland leasing, uh, leasing round that was uh, open, so yeah, we might see some more movement there. And then in terms of some of the, um, the data and digital, you know, one of the, the elements of that was also around um, more automation, remote operated vehicles, unmanned drones, um, vessels, that kind of thing. So I guess, we, have we seen um, much movement there? or anything uh, coming up in the near future? Yeah, I'm not sure that's one for 2020, but it's definitely something that's getting a lot more attention. And um, as I mentioned before, with limits on, on um, technicians being able to go to site, having these automated systems are, um, are definitely something we're going to see more of in the future. And that's great because that's uh, obviously a, a great space for, for innovation and, and maybe plays into some of what we were saying before about um, other sectors looking for opportunities to, to diversify into, uh, given the current climate. Yeah, I think there's a role for um, plenty of businesses in the energy transition space, uh, really something to, to watch closely. And we've, of course, been working with the Oil and Gas Technology Centre looking at energy transition. And, and a big part of that is trying to ensure that the supply chain and skills and expertise are able to get transferred into this renewable energy space. So. Tom, if I was to sum up, um, I think I would say it's been a difficult year. Um, no one could have predicted, but given that, I think at this mid-year stage, you've passed your appraisal. Um, and we'll <laughs> really look forward to looking at this again in December and see how it's panned out. Gavin, thank you very much for taking part in today's episode. It's now time to de-energise until next month. In the meantime, listeners can read the full blog and find more news on renewable energy at ore.catapult.org.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ORECatapult.